As you can see from the screen, our reading today is from Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. You'll find that on page 59 of the Church Bibles. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh Bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. 
and I will make the Egyptians favourably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbour, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold, and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Phil. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Lord, I pray that we would know that you are God and, Lord, that we are yours because you made us, but, Lord, also because you have won us by the blood of Jesus to be the sheep of your pasture. We are precious to you, uh, even though you are this amazing Lord. Lord, be with us and by your spirit, I pray. Uh, help me as I try and help us to wonder uh, at you. Amen. Amen. Well, I can tell you that it is quite an experience starting a, uh, in a new church. Uh, some of you know that uh, all too well. Many of you will not. Uh, this has been an absolutely epic three weeks. Um, I feel like I'm 15 degrees behind the curve the whole time. I have learned something like 200, 300 names in as many minutes. Um, and I've set to send almost the same again in numbers of messages apologizing for things I've got wrong, where I've put my foot in it. Um, the children have been all right, but you know, we've had our times at the table where we've been in tears, almost. Um, it's been uh, frantic uh, at work, and I totally get why ministers burn out. I totally get that. Uh, and I guess uh, for a lot of us, I don't know if you've read, there's a lovely description of Jonah as he goes down into the water. And he talks about in the Hebrew how the seaweed is wrapped around his head as he goes under the water. And that's kind of him dying. And it sort of feels often like that with life, doesn't it? And there's so much going on. There's so much ahead in the future. I'm not really sure that my head is actually above the water. That's what we say, isn't it? And we feel like Jonah bobbing away with seaweed wrapped around our head. I don't know what you face at the minute. It might be chronic pain or illness, a difficult family relationship, uh, some kind of fear at work. And maybe there's just been a massive change in what you were expecting of your life, whether it's a, a child who needs lots of help suddenly or, or some kind of sickness. The wonderful news that we have here is that the Lord is our God and he is with us. This has been such a wonderful passage for me to preach on as I have felt the inadequacies of me and of my situation, my hopelessness uh, as a minister being asked to take on uh, the privilege of being a minister here. And I want to share with you tonight what this passage I think is designed to tell us, which is who is your God? Who is this God that you go to face whatever it is that you have going on the minute? 
And I think what we see here in this amazing chapter is the infinite God Almighty is with you. And he is a God that is beyond. You, can never, you can't imagine anything better. You will physically never ever be able to imagine a bigger or greater God. And he says to us in here, go trusting in my promises and that I am with you. I think this is a passage which lots of us will be familiar with. Many of us will know that great moment in verse 14, I am who I am. Many of us will have perhaps grown up with the story of, of, uh, of Moses before the burning bush. But I want us to see the whole chapter here and what I think happens in this particular part of Moses' words to God's people on the plains of Moab as God explodes onto the scene. There's almost a chapter and a half of personal dialogue between the creator and this guy, Moses. It's a supreme revelation, not just in the name that he gives, but in this whole chapter of what he does and how he behaves. I want you to see that this infinite, almighty God is with you. He is incredible. So we're going to work through the passage. It's going to be a tsunami. I think that's how it's designed to be, so that we might be awestruck at who this God is. Let's dive in. Straight away, we see a God who comes to sinners. Verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb. Why is Moses doing that? He was a prince of Egypt. Not anymore. We were reminded in the last chapter how he was a murderer. He's, he's killed a man. He is a hypocrite. There's the... Uh, um, in verse 14 of chapter 2, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? He's been an absolute failure at trying to liberate God's people. He's in exile without country. He's got an adopted uh, father-in-law now, and he is tending someone else's sheep. It is the reverse of the rag to riches, isn't it? And yet, strangely, outside of God's kingdom, to a man who was a murderer and a failure, comes, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him. What? What? I think we're so used to thinking of Moses as being this great leader that we forget that this moment is utterly absurd. That the creator, the holy God, would appear to a man like Moses. Verse 6 look what Moses does. He, he hid his face because he's afraid to look at God, and no wonder. He knows what he's done. He knows why he's where he is right now. And yet here he is about to get a chapter and a half of personal dialogue and a commission to go and save God's people from the Lord Almighty. Our God is a God who comes to sinners. But also, look with me again, he's an unchanging God. In verse 6, when, when, he, uh, when he speaks to Moses, isn't that wonderful that the Lord would deign to give a sinner his words, the voice that called all the stars and creation into being, that jumped to obey him, and those words are spoken to Moses. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. We'll come back to that. Verse 6, then he said, I am... The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now we hear that name all the time if you're in church and you do Old Testament. It might be totally new to you and that is fine. But we can forget, if you hear it a lot, that that is the covenant name of God. 
because God made a covenant that is a promise with Abraham many, many years before that he would create a people and take them to a place and that he would be their God forever and ever. That was the promise. And what's, what we're being reminded here as God reveals himself is that he's not changed. Abraham has come and gone. Jacob has come and gone. Isaac has come and gone. But God has not changed. He is the same God. And it is the same promise. And it's wonderful that he is an unchanging God because it means that his promises are unchanging. He's not going to suddenly change his mind. He swears some of those promises actually on himself in order to make us feel how unchanging those promises are. Here we have a God who is not only comes to sinners, though he is the almighty creator, but he is unchanging and a God who keeps his promises. That's what we're learning as we encounter him in Exodus and in Genesis. But keep going, verse 7 and 8, we see God who acts for his people. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't that marvelous, all those verbs there? God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And what's God doing? He is seeing it. He is hearing it. He is concerned. And so he comes to rescue. And you might think, you might think, well, why is he doing that now? They've been there for 400 years. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, how he says, have you looked carefully, I've heard them crying out. And then in verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This kind of feeling that it's got so bad that the people of God have actually turned to God and they're calling out to him. It's as though he's responding to their prayer. Isn't that marvellous? Here is a God, a creator, who acts for his people and does say, I think probably, on the fact that they have cried out to him. They are groaning. This might be maybe a more accurate or, or a sort of a better idea there. He's not blind or busy or bored. He is a God who acts for his people. That's marvellous, isn't it? And he's a God who rescues, we've learned there as well, isn't he? He's a God who rescues and he does that through the week. Have a look at verse 10. So now, he's saying, I've come to rescue. So now, Moses, verse 10, go. I'm sending you. What? Unbelievable. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I mean, understandably, Moses is, well, verse 11, who am I? We often, I think we miss the shock that that is. I have come to rescue my I've come to rescue my people. Great God, if you just crack on with it, it's over there. And what does he say? No, I'm gonna send you. He rescues through the weak. He rescues through this murderer, this failure, this uh, spiritually corrupt leader. 
This, this stateless refugee, that is the person that he's going to use to save his people. And I love the fact that when Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You know, if I was God, I think probably the next thing I would do at this point is say, well, Moses, we're going to send you on a course and we're going to sort out your leadership skills. You're going to learn how to talk, mate, because you are a terrible speaker. And we're also, you know, you're going to go on a retreat and you're going to get some real godliness and we're going to sort you out. But he doesn't do that, does he? And he doesn't, it's the very next thing that God said is, in answer to who am I that I should go, is God said, I will be with you. You will continue to be a mess. You will continue to be insufficient for this task. And that's the point. Because I will be with you. I'm not expecting you to be better or bigger or, or, or anything. I am so mighty that I will rescue my people and I will do it through you. It's like I once played someone uh, squash and it was quite a tight game and uh, I got to the end and I thought I'd done quite well because I got within a couple of points. And then I just noticed something wasn't quite right and on the last couple of points I noticed he was playing left-handed. Oh, it's a bit depressing, isn't it, when you get beaten by someone who's so good. They've, just, they've basically beaten you playing with their left hand. God is so mighty that he will restore his people through someone even as, as hopeless as Moses. More quickly, verse 12, God is with his people. Isn't that great? I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you personally, Moses, that's singular, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. It's a picture, isn't it, of God's people coming to God in one place, and they're going to be together. And God is going to be with Moses as he goes and gets them and brings them to the mountain. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, isn't it? And I wonder whether that sandal, taking the sandal off because this is holy ground, it's a kind of little idea that actually this is a place where God lives on this mountain is where you're going to hang out with God the Lord is with his people that's extraordinary isn't it he wants to be with us he wants to be with his people he he wants to be amongst them in rescuing them from this slavery but then we come, don't we? It just sort of grows and grows. But we come to this self-revelation in verse 13 where Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, um, uh, <clears throat> was it suppose I go and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation, because I don't change. I am who I am. I don't have a beginning, and I don't have an end. I exist because I exist. There is no way that you can put me in a box you can't even really put a name on me because that would be to limit me in some way or decrease my perfection. Putting a label on God is like tying a Christmas gift tag 
to the ocean, isn't it? Because he is so huge. And that, that's the God that we're told has come to rescue his people. Isn't it lovely that God gives Moses the words to say? He gives, <laughs> with that trickiness, he, he gives Moses exactly the description. That's all you've got to say. I am who I am, Jehovah. And we see that again in verse 16. Uh, um, God gives his words to his servant. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, here, look, say these words. You don't have to make it up. I'll give you exactly what you've got to say. In verse 18, he is going to open their ears and their hearts. Can you see that? The elders of Israel will listen to you. Uh, Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey out of the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Again, he gives him the words. But verse 19, this is a God who knows the future. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. It's not a surprise to God when Pharaoh says no, because he knows everything. Nothing you do or I do is ever a surprise to God, because the God that is with us is a God who knows everything. Nothing that happens to you, it may be a surprise to you to find yourself preaching in a church in Chesham, but it's no surprise to God, because he knows everything. Verse 20, he's so powerful, isn't he, here? So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Isn't that brilliant? He said, look, it'll take a mighty hand to compel Pharaoh, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just stretch out my my hand. It's not even my mighty hand or my big right hand or my whole everything. I'm just going to stretch out my hand. He... God is going to squash a superpower like you or I might squash a fly. That's how mighty he is. The victory is never in doubt, is it? And I love, did you note the reversal at the end? A God who reverses, who raises up the meek and the humble and the enslaved. Who doesn't just win, but he wins with honours. And I will make the Egyptians favourably disposed towards his people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbour and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. You will literally take off the rings of slavery, and they will give you jewellery. Isn't that amazing? That's a little bit of a picture, isn't it, for the gospel? When we get rid of slavery to sin and instead we're clothed with Christ but that's the kind of God we've got it's a God who comes to his people and doesn't just I won't just take you out of slavery you are, you are going to actually be blessed by the people who, who enslaved you that is how big a God I am I really hope that your heads are reeling a little bit because I think that's the purpose here I think when Moses is writing this he wants us to see this almighty God who is so huge and wonderful that it's like um, uh, on a holiday, I was, I was on the coast and there's a big lighthouse and it's all dark and then suddenly the lighthouse flashes past you and you're sort of blinded and you sort of catch a glimpse of the beauty of the countryside and then it kind of goes dark again. This chapter's a bit like this, isn't it? It's a sort of flash of God's holiness and his amazingness. Just for a moment, we kind of behold this infinite God, just a bit of him. 
And yet that is the God who is with us. There's a lovely picture of the Oval, um, the White House, where the President of the United States does all his business, uh, of JFK, who was a president with probably some of the most amount of power of the day, really, and influence across the globe. And he sat at his desk, uh, and it looks like an ordinary picture, except for under the desk is his son peeking out. <laughs> That's lovely, isn't it? And that's the kind of power with weakness we've got here, isn't it? The almighty God, with all that power, and yet it's all hovering just over Moses and God's people and us. If you put yourselves in the shoes of the Israelites in the second generation, they're heading towards the promised land, and they're sat on the plains of Moab, and they're looking over the border, and they're thinking, that is the place that God has promised us. But Jericho looks pretty big and scary. The spies have come back and they've told us that these guys are huge. The last generation, they didn't even get to go in. And look, we're a bunch of refugees. You know, we haven't got an army, we haven't got weapons. You know, who are we that we are going to enter the Canaanites in this promised land? And Moses sits down and he writes this book. He writes this about him and he writes this about uh, his God, doesn't he? And what's his point? Is to trust Moses and themselves less and to trust God more. What God has commanded and promised seems impossible. But Moses writes of himself deliberately to decrease their trust in him and themselves and to increase their trust in God. They are inadequate. The struggle is real. But their God is better than they can ever imagine. And so when it says, go, I am sending you, how, and you think, how will that work? They're thinking, well, this is the God who is with me. And as they read these words, they look back and they see that this rescue that is promised has happened. We were delivered from the Egyptians. We did plunder them. God was with us, and he has got us to this point. The great news is, is that we look back and we see God's rescue that has already been accomplished for us, don't we? We look back at Jesus on the cross. The thing that we thought was impossible, that our sins could be forgiven and that we might have life forever and ever with God, and yet we can see it. There is Jesus on the cross dying for you and I and rising again from the dead to show us that eternal life is ours if we will trust in him. And then pouring out his spirit on his church He is with us even closer than he was with Moses standing before the bush's knee. That's who we look back on. And so the question is, is will we go trusting not in ourselves, but this God Almighty who is with us and his promises? We are inadequate. Your struggles and my struggles are real. But our God is better than you can ever imagine. He doesn't promise to take those struggles away or to get rid of our inadequacy. But what he does promise is that he will be big enough. He will be big enough. Whatever we face, however we're commanded by God to glorify uh, in our circumstances, whatever we've got coming up, there is no place for hopelessness with a God of this magnitude who is with us in Christ, is there? I will be with you, says Jesus, to the end of the age.
He sees and hears our prayers, doesn't he? He sees exactly what we're doing. He hears our prayers and he acts on them. Not even our sin can stop him, unless you think you're worse of a mess than Moses was. Not the size of the problem can stop God helping you, unless you think that your size of your problem is bigger even than a superpower like Egypt. He loves to rescue the oppressed. He loves to reverse our situation, and he loves to use us as the weak. So perhaps, really, Christians should be filled with awestruck optimism rather than hopelessness. But similarly, there's no place for a godless activity where we get so busy doing things that we forget God. We think we can do it if we just did, if we just had. Actually, what we want to do is we've got God. He will do it. When was the last time that you said no to something because you remembered that God doesn't need you to grow his kingdom? When was the last time that you thought, yes, our team for this ministry is weak and pathetic. Excellent. God Almighty will show how wonderful and powerful he is. What God loves to do is to use failures and sinners and the weak to humble the proud. And brothers and sisters, that's you and I. Because God has sent us, go and make disciples of all nations. And we're not up to it. We don't feel up to it. I think Jeremy did a survey of Emmanuel. And one of the things that came back on evangelism was we just don't feel equipped. You never will. But instead, you have better. You've got God with you. The Almighty to give you the words you need to say. Who hears your prayers. Who loves to use you to humble the proud. Who's longing for us to cry out. To come and worship. And to obey God by going. And then expecting him to deliver on what he has promised. And that's why Christians, I think, rather than being filled with a sort of godless activity, we are a quiet, persistent, confident people, aren't we? We don't shy away from the small things because we know we've got a big God who is doing great stuff. I long all the time for our teenagers and youth and everyone indeed, but particularly them as they grow up in a society that tells them it's just about you. It doesn't matter whether it's your mental health issues, whether it's working out your relationships and your love, or whether it's your work. It's down to you. You can sort it. You do it. It's all in your power. You... And it sounds great, doesn't it? And to the point you realize that you're all on your own. I long for them to know this, that they are not on their own, that they have the almighty God with them if they trust in Jesus. I love, to tell, I love to listen out for my friends when they're talking like that and say, that's what I love about Jesus, as I know I don't do any of that stuff on my own. A little vision of this with a, a, a gentleman from a church uh, I was last at before one, and uh, his wife had been diagnosed with very serious cancer. They had two teenage children, and I went to visit them. I took them a bunch of flowers, because what else can you do at that stage, right? And uh, I said, David, like, how are you doing? Like, surely you're just, you know, it's terrible. Uh, and he, t- he looked at me and he just said, Ed, you keep telling us God's got this. The Bible tells us that God has got this. He is with us. And he will sort this out. I don't know how, and it's going to be hard. But I know he's with us. And I know we'll get through it.
Isn't that exciting? That as we face all sorts of challenges here as a church family, where it's a mission field out here in Chesham that we just don't know how, we, how are we going to get across the neighbor's fence into a, a, a community that is totally different from us, that has a different religion, or, or people who just don't care, then actually we don't need to be perfect or well-equipped. We don't need to have the right answers. We just need to remember that God is with us. We aren't enough, but God is. Do you pray? Lord God, we praise you so much that you're a God who comes to sinners. Lord, that you're a God that has rescued us and turned our fortunes around totally. Lord, how you have shaken off the the bondage of sin and shame and guilt and instead clothed us with the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we wear royal robes. You have plundered the devil and made us your instruments who through our inadequacy and our failure can only serve to highlight your glory. Thank you, Lord, so much for the freedom and the comfort and the wonder that there is in that. Amen. Amen.